पंचिंदीय संवर्णो तह नवबीह बंबचेर गुत्तीधरो चौबीह कसाय मुक्को इस गुणे हिम संयुक्त पंच महाव्ययुक्त पंच विहायार पालन सम्मत्तो Hello, welcome back. So, you've just heard the sutra that we're going to be discussing today. You got that? You got the whole thing? Got it memorized? It went a little fast. Uh, let's do that again a bit more slowly with the English uh, translation. Panchindiya Samvarano तह नव बीह बंभचेर गुत्तिधरो च उबीह कसाय मुक्को ई अठारस गुणे हिम संजुत्तो पंच महव्वय जुत्तो पंच बिहायार पालन समत्थो पंच समीओति गुत्तो Okay, so now we have a bit more of an idea of what we're working with. Now, uh, that chant seems to have different titles when I search for it online, but uh, what it's being referred to here by Upadhyaya Amar Muni is Guru Guna Smarana Sutra, which is remembering the Guru's qualities. And uh, when, I, when I said Guru Guna Smarana in the previous episode and Priyal heard it, that's a phrase that is familiar to her just from living in India in reference to teachers in school as well as any other. Guru just means teacher here. Um, of course, it's taken on a connotation in the West of being the guru, the Indian guru, the spiritual guru, the person who you must bow to. And then there's all kinds of corrupt weirdos and perverts in uh, the West that take on the mantle of guru and the word is generally used like the word cult in a negative sense in the west so we're gonna have to peel back some of those layers to get to uh this is you know ancient uh indian culture this is the guru as defined in jainism 2300 years ago as being translated to by amar by uh Upadhyaya Amar Muni for a 20th century Western audience. So there's that. Um, one other thing that I thought I'd mention is in talking, when it was talking about how this is, this is, you know, wrong faith, that's wrong faith. Bathing in Ganga is wrong faith. Uh, you know, performing the, the, uh, the, the pouring of the ashes into the Ganga to free your loved one's souls is wrong faith. Um, Priyal pointed out that she doesn't think that uh, Mahavir ever said any of those things and that these were things that were basically added over time by the religion makers. So uh, from her perspective anyway, that would be a bit like uh, how the, the red letter Christians think of sort of Paul the uh, you know the influence of Paul and not only that but the first second third fourth fifth sixth seventh uh, ecumenical councils and uh, all the various popes and as some of some of them refer to them antichrists and perhaps they're not that far off uh, you know in that analysis but anyway um, that's neither here nor there so let's get to the reading shall we so we can uh, get to as much of this as we can. Real quick, if this is your first time seeing me, click here instead. That will take you to the whole playlist 
That's for the people watching this on YouTube. For those of you listening on the podcast, hello. If you've decided to jump in uh, with this most recent episode, oh, that's fine. I respect that. But um, I do recommend starting with the introductory episode, episode one. Uh, there's surely a button on the podcast app that you can push that will uh, sort everything in order, you know, starting with the first. And you can uh, start with the first one and hear that 14 minute or however long introduction of mine that's only on the podcast it's not on the youtube playlist see this is how it feels to the people on youtube when i'm talking to someone else other than you normally i'm talking to the youtube people and ignoring the podcast people now i'm giving them so much attention right anyway so if this is uh if you do, if you're here for the Jainism, you clicked it because it said Jain Sutras and that's why you're here, then rather than watching this, is it the 8th or the 9th? I think it's the 9th uh, episode of the Jain Sutras podcast. If I'm wrong about that, that I'm wrong about that. I don't think I am, though. Anyway, if you're here for Jainism, but this is indeed the first episode that you're watching and you're kind of confused because it says Buddhist books, Jain Sutras, and you're like, how is Jain Sutra in any way, you know, shape or form could be considered a Buddhist book? Uh, then click here, and that'll take you to the beginning of the Jain Sutras playlist within the Buddhist books podcast. And in that episode, I spend a half an hour laying out why I'm going to read the Jain Sutras on the Buddhist books podcast. It's good. I recommend that one. It's got maps and stuff. Anyway, so let's get to it. You saw the uh, not really literal English translation, for example, when he's saying uh, Panchidaya Samvarano. I mean, I looked up these words and some of them, they don't seem to come up in the Sanskrit English dictionary. I think you have to be a scholar, a student of Sanskrit to be able to break these down. But, uh, you know, looking at them with Priyal and she's, she doesn't, you know, she knows as much Sanskrit as the next person in India, but is also not a scholar of Sanskrit. Uh, but of course, Hindi is derived from Sanskrit. And we were looking at these words and kind of wondering if this was actually technically Sanskrit or if it was some variant of Sanskrit that's unique to Jainism. But uh, Panchidyaya seems to mean group of five and Samvarano means enclose. So enclose group of five gets translated by the translator as one who has controlled the five senses. So I think a lot of this is kind of like, well, you know, it's context. Everybody kind of knows what that's referring to. Technically, the words mean encloser of the five, but, you know, he's telling us, you know, ignoramuses, you know, that that means, you know, the one who controls the five senses. So there you go. Um, so anyway, uh, so those were the not quite literal, you know, meanings of the phrases-ish that were uh, that were being spoken or chanted in that uh, sutra. By the way, real quick, giving credit where credit's due, that uh, in the opening, when you saw the books moving across, if you were watching, or, you know, when you first clicked play on this podcast episode, uh, I'm pointing to the YouTube you know, links, by the way, for the people on the podcast. So if you're on the podcast and you want to know where that came from, just go to the YouTube episode that corresponds with the episode that you're listening to. And then you just see me point at about the seven minute mark to that uh, video. So you can click that video and you'll see the original video, the audio of which I sampled for that, giving credit where credit's due. And uh, if you are the person who was speaking there, I hope that 
that you don't mind my using it and uh, giving you credit and all, please don't report me to YouTube. Likewise with the uh, the one who ch uh, chanted it more slowly, which is here, that, um, thank you, sir. Um, and he even has his WhatsApp number on there after his chant for those who want to contact him and say, well done. Okay, so now that that's all out of the way, let's get to the meaning as uh, explained by Upadhyaya Marmuni of the uh, Guru Hello. Guru Guna Smarana Sutra. Okay. Those who have controlled the five senses practice the ninefold restraints of celibacy or continence. Those have two different meanings as far as I know, but let's just keep moving. Um, are free from the fourfold passions of anger, pride, delusion, and greed. Are bearers of the 18 virtues, which include the practice of the five major vows, fivefold conduct, fivefold regulations, and threefold restraints, and are thus the bearer of these 36 qualities, are my true teachers. So about as coherent as it was when we saw it the first time. But I'm assuming that this means that there are lists, and I love lists. Ooh, there's going to be 36 things listed. I'm excited. <clears throat> Analysis. It is befitting for the distinguished forehead of man, a unique gift to mankind alone, uh, to prostrate at anyone's feet. Excuse me, let me start over. Is it, word order is important, is it befitting for the distinguished forehead of a man, a unique gift to mankind alone, uh, to prostrate at anyone's feet? Man's head is the supreme center of thought. It is the creator of all situations. It is what has led him to the platform of his life, whether it is the infernal or the liberated. Those are the only two options not a false dichotomy. Okay, he says facetiously, look it up. This vast expanse of the tangible physical world around us is the creation of man's intellect, which is symbolized by his forehead. Therefore, uh, can, uh, can there be a greater deterioration of man than his stooping to thoughtless surrender and slavery to just about anyone? Question mark. End of the analysis. That's an odd analysis, I have to say. Usually an analysis is something that analyzes something, but this is just sort of asking questions which contradict it, sort of anticipating some, you know, but articulate, articulately anticipating some of the questions that might come up in the mind of the 20th century Western uh, student of, anyway, okay, the worthy guru, that's the next section. Those who wrote our scriptures have cataloged the significance of gurus and praised them with open hearts. They say that every aspirant should cherish feelings of extreme faith and devotion towards the guru. 
If man does not become devoted to the one who has directly done him good by helping him cross over from the complex path of illusion into that of restraint, how can he ever become a devotee of God whose presence is indirectly validated by the guru? Well, that logic just irrefutable, solid mathematics. Okay, thus the aspirant, this is like mosquito hour, by the way, I'm like really silly for doing this right now, but I wanted to, the, the, the lighting is eh, eh. In an hour, it'll be too dark, but an hour ago it was too hot. So I've gone for mosquito hour, so lucky me. Anyway, see, see how, see what I do for you? joking. I do it for my own ego. We all know that. Thus, the aspirant is indebted to his ego. No. Thus, the aspirant is indebted to his guru for life. The guru's greatness is boundless. Hence, every religious practice begins by worshiping the guru with devotion. But the question is, who is a guru? At whose feet should we prostrate ourselves? How can we differentiate between a true master and one who is merely attired in the garb of a guru? That was from Kumar, eh? Great movie. Check it out. Oh. Seriously. Uh, that link will take you to the trailer, but the movie. Mwah. Okay. The present day scenario, speaking specifically of India, is such that there are way too many hoodwinkers in the garb of a guru. They are in your midst at every turn, professing to be gurus, feeding on the innocence of aspiring devotees. What did I mention the other day about uh, just because someone has a beard and a orange robe? One would not be too far from the truth in stating that apart from the other causes, one of the main causes for India's backward status in the world is this phenomenon of the false godmen that prevails. Just a reminder, this book was written um, about a hundred years ago. So this was before a lot of things happened. This was like if, if there's that movie that's coming out about the where they, they uh, glorify the human trafficking lady in uh, Bombay in the 60s. Uh, this was like contemporary with those days um, where then, you know, of course, there was a lot of development and the tech boom and a lot of other things. India is kind of like the second fastest growing economy in the world, I believe, or it's kind of neck and neck with uh, China. Um, but, you know, since then, U.S. has been declining since the 70s. England has been declining since World War II. Uh, and uh, India has been on the rise. So I would, I would, I, I just, it rubs me the wrong way reading these words. In, um, in the 1200s, Dogen referred to Japan as, you know, pathetic, savage, shameful, and how China was where civilization comes from. And if only we, we barbarian Japanese could be as, as great and civilized as China, well, then we'd really be something, you know. So, I, I would consider these words of uh, Upadhyaya Amarmuni to be as dated as Dogen's when it comes to his assessment of India as a country and as a culture. All right.
Anyway, these are people who have led lives of grandiosity, reveling in all kinds of sensual gratification, uh, including rich food, wine, drugs, and women, among other pleasures. Uh, how can one expect such a class of people to help in a country's growth and progress? No, you can't. Obviously. How can a blind person show the path to others? Right? What have I been saying? I've been talking about this. Um, therefore, this chapter reflects on who the real guru is. You've read Ramdas. You know it's your own acid voice in your head, right? We all know that. Yeah, the inner guru, higher self, the true guru, right? That's where he's going with this. Um, every aspirant should take a firm vow to accept none other than those greats who are the bearers of the 36 qualities, of which Ramdas probably was the bearer of one and a half, I'm guessing. Uh, as described in the scriptures as one's spiritual master. It is essential to remember this vow and to reiterate the qualities of a guru before prostrating. If you guys, if you're, if, if, if you're, um, if you don't know who Ram Das is, uh, it's not who you're thinking of. If you do know who Ram Das is, then, then it is who you're thinking of. He was a, he was a, a white guy who came to India and uh, took a lot of drugs in the 60s and then went back to U.S. and wrote a book called Be Here Now, Remember, Be Here Now, Remember, Be Here Now, Remember. But surely there are other Ram Dasses. So if you're, if you're from India and you're watching this and you're wondering why I'm talking about like a different, like legitimate person named Ram Das from centuries ago, that's not who I'm talking about. Okay, just needed to put that out there. Okay. Uh, anyway. There's stuff to say, but I'm like, I'm not going to go off on those uh, tangents. It is essential to remember this vow and to reiterate the qualities of a guru before prostrating at the master's feet. It is with this aim that this sutra, Guru Guna Smarana Sutra, is read during Samayika before uttering the Guru Vandana Sutra. Subjugating the five senses. Our five senses, touch, taste, smell, sight, and hearing, are greatly responsible for drowning us in this worldly ocean. Nice turn of phrase. Uh, a true guru is one who is detached from objects which attract or repel the senses. Ninefold celibacy. Ninefold celibacy. Jesus. Okay. By restraining the activities of the five senses, celibacy becomes easy to practice. Yet to follow the vow of celibacy with greater firmness... <laughs> oh, Beavis, he said firmness. Th that was Butthead. He uh, was a cartoon. Anyway, the scriptures have, to have prescribed ninefold restraints restraints? Like BDSM restraints? No. No, not like BDSM restraints. Uh, ninefold restraints for the body, mind, and speech, known as guptis. 
So that's what the kids are calling it these days. You've seen Fifty Shades. Uh, in layman's terms, these, the playroom, these can be understood as boundaries. Safe words, if you will. Uh, just as a boundary protecting whatever lies within its perimeter, these nine guptis protect the vow of celibacy. One, solitary residence. Yeah, live alone. Okay. No internet, though. I see you. Uh, okay, solitary residence or vivikta vasati seva. To reside in a solitary place. An aspirant must stay in a place which is not inhabited by those who stimulate the senses or engage in lustful deviations. He should reside in a quiet and peaceful place and nurture the vow of celibacy. Okay. Two, refraining from stimulating discussions. Strikata parihara. To stay away from discussions about the opposite gender, if you're into that. Uh, for men, this includes conversations that dwell on caste, creed, beauty, and attire of women. Ooh, sorry for mentioning saris in the previous episode. Forget I said that. Um, and redcoats, if you're into that. Just as the description of... I guess that was the episode before last, wasn't it? Just as the description of a lemon activates the salivary glands, discussion about women stimulate intense sensations. <laughs> Likewise, have you seen Tartuffe? Likewise, women must avoid discussions about men. And, uh, gay people don't exist of course according to jainism it's implied all right this was a hundred years ago they're barely coming around to it now have i used all my cards if i haven't used all my cards watch this music video it'll give you an idea that there's hope for uh, lgbt and so on in india जब चलते चलते राह मुड़े जब जुगनू मुट्ठी खोल उड़े जब नैन ये तोड़े रूल सभी और खुल के कर ले भूल सभी भूल सभी भूल सभी That's coming out. That's Bollywood today. Anyway, number three of the ninefold, what was it? Ninefold uh, celibacy. Number three, avoidance of seat previously occupied by a person of the opposite gender, which is called in Sanskrit, nasadhyanupavesana. So that's where you sit on a seat and you go, oh, this seat's still warm from... <laughs> that's the Sanskrit word for that. This gupti advises the... Oh, that's the Sanskrit word for not doing that. Cool. It's a lot of 
Sanskrit words. This Gupti advises the male aspirant to avoid sitting in a place that was previously occupied by a woman, and vice versa. It is stated in the scriptures that a Brahmachari, I think, Brahmachari must not sit in a place which has been the previous sitting place of a woman, even if as long as two hours ago. The reason is that when someone sits in a place, his or her energy is transmitted into the seat. So when a person of opposite gender sits there next, his or her mind gets corrupted. This concept of energy is accepted by modern scientists also. <laughs> yes, of course, yes. Accepted. Universally accepted by science itself. And always will be. He says facetiously. Yeah, okay. Let's read on, shall we? Number four. Refrain from looking at a person of the opposite gender. That's called Indriya Prayoga. The male spiritual aspirant must avoid looking at the bodily parts of a woman and vice versa. Even if one's eyes encounter this perchance one must look away. The sense of sight stimulates the mind, which affects the vow of celibacy. It is said that just as gazing at the sun weakens the eyesight, looking at a woman's bodily parts weakens the spirit of celibacy in a man. Number five. Avoidance of a place inhabited by a couple. That's called Kudyantara Dampatya Varajna. Varajana. Varjana. Something like that. One must not stay in a place inhabited by a couple. Strange smells. What's. Okay. Phone was doing something to the extent that one must not even share the same wall. Yeah, you can hear them, obviously. That's going to distract you from your vow of, vow of celibacy. Yeah, if you have a vow of celibacy, you don't want to hear that. Okay. Being close and hearing words of passion may weaken the aspirant's resolve, or just sounds, you know, moaning, what have you, uh, must, uh, may weaken the aspirant's resolve just as fire melts the wax near it. I hear only truth in this, uh, except for the overall overarching concept of it. The, the individual parts are clearly true. Six, to avoid reminiscing about previous indulgences. Yeah. That's uh, something, if you've ever gone to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, seems to be something popular there. I don't know, maybe, I guess it's therapeutic, but sometimes in, instead of talking about, yeah, you know, I ruined my life by drinking, people like, one time I got so fucked up, oh man, I woke up and I had a tattoo on my forehead and I was married, and you know, anyway. To avoid reminiscing about previous indulgences, indulgences or perva, 
Kridita Smriti. Emphasis on the perv. After one undertakes the vow of celibacy, one must not dwell or think about the carnal pleasures one has indulged in previously. Carnal pleasure is dangerous for the brahmachari, brahmachari. Even a memory is enough to ignite desire and destroy one's sadhana. It is a well-known truth that the lure of intoxication happens by memory. Seven, succulent foods, or pranitabhojana. Pranit means unctuous. Therefore, here the reference is to the unctuous and sensually stimulating foods that should be avoided by the brahmachari. Such foods give rise to deviations and temptations in the body. Just as fever is aggravated by the intake of ghee, is it? Okay, good to know. Such foods aggravate the senses. Number eight, to avoid intake of excess food, that's called atimatraboga, to exercise restraint in eating is the most important tool for the protection of celibacy. Intake of excess food creates physical lethargy and mental turmoil, both of which affect celibacy. And number nine, Avoidance of decorative accessories. Vibhusa parivarjana. Vibhusa refers to jewelry and other accessories that glamorize physical appearance, and parivarjan means renunciation. Thus, one must avoid dressing gaudily. Extravagant acts, such as luxurious baths, spraying perfumes on oneself, and wearing fashionable clothes, give rise to desire in the mind of the doer as well as that of the observer. It is akin to placing a red gem on the terrace, thereby attracting the eagle that soars in the distant sky. Well, um, yeah, I think a lot of that is relevant to our overall uh, mission to read all the Buddhist books, as it were. Obviously, we'll never read all the Buddhist books, but you know, the, the good ones. Um, yeah, celibacy was, uh, was something that was adopted as well by the early Buddhists, even to the point where, and I'm not sure the source on this, so I'm not sure the veracity level of possible veracity of this, but, uh, I believe women weren't allowed in Buddha's order at first uh, until Ananda begged Lord Buddha uh, to let in, I think it was like a relative of Lord Buddha, like his cousin or his aunt or something who really wanted to be a follower of his. And he was like, eh, no, 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 no women. No, that'll complicate everything. We're just a men only order. And Ananda was like, surely women are sentient beings, right? You have the opportunity to liberate twice as many sentient beings as you would if you were only teaching men and finally buddha was like hmm you do have a point but he was like okay but you live separately you guys sit over there you guys sit over there don't look at each other you know so he was very much 
uh, in line with this philosophy. And honestly, while I, while I make fun, um, and of course we have the vantage point of being in present day and, you know, psychology and knowing about, you know, kind of the Jungian idea of repressing the shadow, that which persists, that which, that which you resist persists, what you resist persists, um, and seeing kind of the, the downside of celibacy on a massive scale as exemplified by the institution of the Catholic Church, of course, um, and uh, how much better it seems to be to allow priests to be married, uh, as in the example of most of the Protestant denominations and orthodoxy and everyone except for the Catholics. I think they're the only ones that are still harping on that. Anyway, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the main hurdles, um, is what to do about that sexual energy. One of my, my favorite people in the world, uh, who was a teacher, although he was also a student, ironically, but that's, rather than get into the explanation all that, of all that, I'll, I'll just say his name was Gordon, those who know him know him. Uh, knew him. He passed away. Um, those who know him know him. And uh, gosh, yeah, he 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 taught me a lot about this sort of thing. But one thing he taught me was that it's a it's a great blessing growing older as a man, because this demonic force, <laughs> this testosterone, you know, energy that kind of makes your mind always fixate on on these sorts of things. It goes away, you know, I mean, of course, there's the cliche of the dirty old man or, you know, taking Viagra and, you know, this kind of thing. But, but, uh, but yeah, no, his take on it was that it was, it was such a blessing one day when he woke up and realized he hadn't even thought about, you know, sex or, or the pursuit of, of sensual pleasure as it were for like a year you know like it, it just ha hadn't come up on his mind he had been thinking about the books that he was reading he'd been thinking about philosophy he'd been thinking about poetry and uh just to share a personal story and then we'll close when i was about 11 or 12 years old i i went through i a, a very extreme existential kind of period i'm not trying to sound grandiose and pose and oh it was my existential period i was 11. no i mean i legitimately was like going through a crisis um and it was in discovering that ein was a concept in kabbalah that i finally felt like there was another being besides myself that understood what i was going through and um and then kind of the heart sutra emphasis or the shunya emphasis on um on Buddhism that, you know, drew me to Buddhism. And uh, for those who don't know me, I spent uh, a long time studying and teaching a form of Kabbalah. And uh, my plan was I was going to follow somewhat in my dad's footsteps. And he went out, was into Hermeticism, Western, and then transitioned into uh, Tantric Buddhism, Eastern. So I was going to do, okay, five years in this, five years in that. I ended up doing like 30 years in the former. So then now I'm doing the latter in, you know, a big way, but avoiding gurus and um, cults and that kind of thing. So... For those who haven't heard all the previous episodes, that's just an update on that. And I'll try not to run too much longer. But yeah, what was it that Gordon... Yeah, that was just it. Oh yeah, and the personal story was when my hormones started kicking in. Um, and I was no longer fascinated by the beauty of nature, the, the symmetry of mathematics. I was no longer focused on the great void of nothingness that was 
informed by my understanding of science. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side was a was a pure scientist. And um, when my thoughts upon waking, my thoughts upon going to sleep, my thoughts in my dreams, and my thoughts all throughout the day were on girls, girls. Uh, when that started happening, and I was still young enough to remember what it was like for that not to be the case. So when I was about 11, I really seriously wanted to take a razor and cut it off. I'm not talking about suicide, you know, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not saying I wasn't feeling those feelings, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about right now. What I'm talking about is I wanted to be a eunuch. I wanted to end being a man. I didn't want to change gender and be a woman. I didn't want to be a part of it. I didn't want to be involved in the, uh, the, the whole let's reproduce, let's be compelled by our DNAs, uh, you know, understandable uh, need to survive. Uh, I was enjoying being a human with sentience and intelligence and dreams and consciousness and artistic uh, ideas and thoughts and enjoying the words and, and art, art and music of others. And I just wanted to share in that beautiful realm of, of, of human consciousness without being compelled like an animal with, a, with, with someone whipping it saying, Eh, stare at girls, stare at girls. And when you're 11, and when you're not gonna, you know, get to participate in that aspect of life, surely for at least another, well, I was in California for at least another three or four years, you know, uh, or five or six or seven years or eight or nine or 10 years, or, you know, for some folks, it's uh, 10, 20 years, you know, or their whole lives, you know. I was lucky enough not to be in that category, but still, when you're 11, having to wait six or seven years is a long time for something that has taken over your mind. So, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm making light of it and I'm making fun of it, but it is a big issue, you know, uh, if for one who's on the spiritual path. What do you do about it? What do you do about the fact that you want to be on this path, but you have this natural thing that's drawing you over toward this path over here so i'm not gonna i have no answers i'm just acknowledging that you know the struggle is real and 2300 years ago and in buddha's day you know uh they dealt with it how they dealt with it it was a long time ago tantra came along and dealt with it another way um and in present day, people are still dealing with it, and uh, probably likely they'll be dealing with it for thousands of years to come, unless, you know, the CRISPR machine, uh, the old New World Order trick, right? Let's close, shall we? This is run over to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west, to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below. We send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Until next time.